head of a creature that was six and a half to seven feet tall. The CIA ran secret mind control experiments. It's a tale of a creature that's been seen by many, but believed by few. And experts say there have been reported sightings of paranormal activity. And there was this creature and it ran down this hill. They say something was flying over their house and they have no idea what it was. How the world's most powerful individuals are actually shape-shifting reptilians. My scariest ghost hunting experience. Tuesday evening, it is Paranormal IRL. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here, everybody, as we get warmed up for another great night of great discussion. I appreciate you all filing into all the chat rooms. Good to see so many friends coming into the chat rooms and saying hello. I'm trying. I was typing feverishly to say hello to everybody. But as the show uh, gets started here, I don't uh, I don't have as much time. So I'll just do it verbally. Hello, everybody. Good to see you all. And thanks for being here. Remember, if you're a podcast listener, please share the podcast. It's amazing to me that the show gets downloaded something like 10,000 times uh, per episode for the podcast version of the show. It's just a staggering number. And I really, really appreciate that support. I don't often get to address our podcast listeners listeners in a live way or in any way for that matter, other than just doing it like this. And I want to thank you all for doing that. There are a bunch of folks who have uh, clicked on that support button in the podcast apps and uh, have supported the program that way. And I want to thank them as well. In fact, there's a couple of folks that have done a couple of those. Thank you for doing that. Hey, it's JV here. You know, I've asked for your support in the past and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show and it's so inexpensive. Now you can go to Patreon and you can become a Patreon supporter. And we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But tonight we're going to be talking about one of the most perplexing and frustrating phenomenon uh, in the search for answers to paranormal questions. We have talked about uh, Bigfoot many times on the program, had many different perspectives. And tonight we've got two filmmakers who have just completed a documentary. It's called A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed. And we have Toby Johnson and Brett Eichenberger joining us to talk about this film. Toby is the author of the Owl Moon Lab books and also researcher of all things related to Bigfoot. He's got over a decade of research and his own experiences 
uh, to talk about. He's dedicated his work to investigating the relationship of Sasquatch and the paranormal. Toby's the co-producer of a documentary, the one we mentioned, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed. It is a groundbreaking two-part documentary series that focuses on Sasquatch witness testimony. And Toby's come to the conclusion that Sasquatch is not only very real, but is far beyond what most would have you believe, which is that quote is what I put into the title of tonight's show. We're going to be talking about that specifically. Brett Eichenberger is an award-winning filmmaker. He's got over 25 years of experience working in the film and video production industry. His work includes the feature films Light of Mine and Pretty Broken, in addition to commercials, short films, music videos, and documentary shorts. Filmmaking has taken Brett around the world, but he feels most at home in the outdoors of the Pacific Northwest, which is, of course, the epicenter of the Bigfoot phenomena. As a native Oregonian, Brett has been intrigued by Bigfoot since his childhood years. How could he not be? And this documentary has given him the opportunity to explore the topic in depth. In depth. We're very, very honored and pleased to have both uh, Toby and Brett with us. Guys, thanks for being here. Welcome to the program. I'm really anxious to talk about uh, the documentary film and your experiences making it. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us, JV. Appreciate it. It's, it's good to be here. And I got to say, first and foremost, that's the best intro we have seen. That, that was great. <laughs> I'm good at intros. I'll let you make the judgment on the rest of the show as we go on. <laughs> yeah, no, that was fantastic. And I, I'm even talking about your uh, your graphics with the Bigfoot going by. And oh, cool. The UFO, and then you popped up every place. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. Well, thank you. I appreciate oh, hearing job. that. Um, I'm going to, you know, with, with with two guys on the show, it's, you know, we got to kind of go back and forth um, to get a lot of questions in. So we're going to start firing away. And Toby, I'm really anxious to understand how you got bitten by the Bigfoot bug, the curiosity that ultimately led you here, because obviously you didn't start here. You've been search, researching and searching for a while. Well, since the mid-2000s in the little town of Thurston, Oregon, it started with a single trackway that my son found, and it ended up with doing conferences and live venues. Um, I would do venues and bars, uh, get people a couple IPAs and uh, have them tell their Bigfoot stories once a month. And when these people would show up, they'd tell me stories that were incredible. A lot of times these stories would range from the simple to the roadside crossings to the extraordinary where they're saying they're having multiple experiences and these these people that say they have these multiple experiences were the ones that I kept feeling as though uh, I should talk to more and so I ended up calling these people extended experiencers of Sasquatch interaction they have backyard Bigfoot phenomena habituation is another term people use and um, they have the stranger stuff going on by far so that's uh, where I spent most of the time is chronicling that. So you was this like, an, were these informal gatherings? Did you do a lecture series or, or how did you pull this together? Because I've never heard that approach and I find it very unique and interesting, in fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty informal. So uh, literally at a greasy spoon uh, in the little town of Lieberg, Oregon by a fish hatchery. And um, before we knew it, within a couple of months, people had this excitement about the fact that we're in Bigfoot country talking about something that they know a lot about. And yet it's super informal and uh, not stuffy and people can tell whatever version of their encounter that they want. And, um, but like I said, the, the extended experiencers kept pulling me aside and said, Hey, I don't want to tell my story in front of these guys, but um, I'll tell you. And it was pretty strange. So that's, 
that's how this whole Owl Moon Lab came to be, which is this book that uh, tells the story of an extended experiencer living in a place, I would call it a power spot, where Sasquatch and all sorts of other things seem to happen almost on a daily basis. Wow. Uh, Brett, I imagine that uh, you were surrounded with lore, um, you know, where you guys are, the North, the Pacific Northwest, as I mentioned in the intro, kind of the epicenter for a lot of this activity, certainly a, a hotspot, if nothing else. Uh, how did you get introduced to this idea? You've been a filmmaker for a while. You probably haven't necessarily thought about making a Bigfoot documentary until you collaborated with Toby. I don't know for sure, but did this Bigfoot thing, uh, you know, hibernate in you to use a, a bit of a pun here for a while before you got to the opportunity to make the documentary? Yeah, it's been hibernating in me for about 44 years. <laughs> um, so I decided early on, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean, we're talking about the age of six when I first saw ET, the movie theaters. And that really kind of catapulted my interest into paranormal too. So uh, when when Tobin and I first met, we uh, instantly connected because of our love of close encounters of the third kind. And while you know other kids were out playing with their friends on BMXs in the early '80s, I was sitting there wearing out my VHS copy of Close Encounters. And even at the the young age of seven and or eight years old, I'd watch the whole movie, rewind it, and watch again and kept having these questions about, you know, what else is there? What, you know, what are these mysteries in the universe that we don't know? And frankly, I have no idea why I was attracted to it at such a young age, but I've always been interested in, in all things unseen. Um, Bigfoot was at the top of the list because as a child, we would commute either to Mount Hood over the, the Cascades of Oregon to or to the Oregon coast over the coast range mountains. And you would hear the legends and the lore going back as far as I would remember. And so in 2012, uh, both Jill and I, who Jill's the co-producer is, is, I'm sorry, is the producer and um, writer, we were able to get um, in with some of the uh, influential Bigfoot researchers here in the state and um, region and really started getting to know them. We went there just as, curious individuals wanting to know more about the phenomenon and it occurred to us years later after we had maintained those relationships that we had really everything we needed to finally do our bigfoot documentary and so with the onset of the pandemic we jumped in a car and headed down to a bigfoot conference that was being held in the woods in june of 2020 we started our interviews and that's what led us ultimately to tobe about i'd say four weeks later all right so i i gotta ask you about the fascination with close encounters because based i think you said you were in your mid 40s uh i think close encounters came out what 78 is that right something around that 78 yeah so you must have saw it later then you must have saw it later right yeah, I was watching. I, don't, I was watching the director's cut or the special edition or one of the other four versions of it. But um, my dad was kind of a renegade, and he was able to get movies that weren't really out on VHS yet. Oh, nice! <laughs> he was like connected to the bit torn of the early '80s, <laughs> and he was a big sci-fi fan too. So he was into to all those movies. And as a kid, I went I went with him. You know what I mean? My my parents didn't really police a lot of the stuff I watched. So, you know, I still recall going to, to Star Wars at the age of maybe three, oh, wow. you know, I was born in 75, so maybe the age of four, but Close Encounters is where I really started to um, 
you know, cause I, I knew my world a little bit better at that point in time, you know, and so um, this is through, this goes throughout grade school. You know, I think I first saw Close Encounters in maybe the third or fourth grade. And then it went on, and the fascination continues to this day. Let me ask you this. I'm going to ask Toby the same question. Um, prior to getting involved in this particular project, what were your thoughts on Bigfoot? Opinion. Exist? Didn't exist? What were you thinking? Um, I had always leaned towards him existing, or to, to them existing, I should say, simply because I just heard about him all the time. You know, and I... You know, I felt like, you know, especially with the Patterson-Gimlin film, I was I was aware of that very early on because I was interested. I check out books at the elementary school library, you, and you'd see photos and stuff. And so I, I didn't question it. I don't think I was never really a skeptic because I think I was so involved in the paranormal at such a young age um, that it's just always been kind of a part of my life. That's not to say I don't I don't question many, many things. I think that's extremely important. Um, and it, ultimately, I am looking for the truth. I think that we're all looking for the truth. But, you know, I would bet my life on Bigfoot being real. I, I think it's 100%. Absolutely. And what's cool about Bigfoot is I think there is so much more there than just a, uh, a gigantic bunch of hairy beasts wandering the forests of North America. And Toby, you uh, obviously you talked about having these informal gatherings where you allowed people to tell their stories, talk about their Bigfoot encounters. First of all, when people were telling these stories, did you see did you see any common threads in their emotions? Were people afraid not to tell them? Because obviously there's a stigma attached with telling stories like this many times. But just in general, did they ex- re-experience some fear when they told these stories? Was uh, or were they excited about it? Uh, what was the general attitude of the storytellers? And not from the documentary, but from this, you know, your lecture uh, right. experience. Uh, they wanted to take you to the area. They wanted to find a confidant that they could have a repeat experience, generally speaking. And they, they're willing to take you to the area, especially these people that were habituators or extended experiencers, and um, see what they've collected over the years. And when all those things had a cohesion to them and there were these parallels of evidence of people that lived sometimes blocks apart, miles apart, states apart, and they're all saying this private thing that um, they're more than other people are saying they are. They have a seemingly hive mind mentality, meaning that one, one what one knows, they all know, and that they can follow you from place to place. Doesn't really matter uh, how many times you move, you kind of um, are on their direct caller line. And there's a lot more to that, but um, that got me extremely interested, especially since I was into the weird already. Yeah. Now, uh, same question I, I gave Brett. Uh, what, if, you, if you rewind back to the point where you started really thinking about this stuff, not necessarily the film, but just the phenomenon itself, did you have any preconceived notions? Were you a believer at that point? Brett. I'm sorry. No, I asked oh, Brett. The, are you uh, asked- no, I'm asking Toby the same question I asked Brett. I'm sorry if I misspoke there. <laughs> did you hear Did you hear the question, Toby? I'm confused who you're asking a question to. I'm right asking now. you. I'm, I said I'd, I'd ask okay. this question to Brett earlier, so I'm asking you. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go, re-ask the question again. <laughs> yeah, no, did, no. rewind to the point where you really started thinking about this stuff seriously. Did you have any preconceived notions? Were you a believer at that time? Were you a skeptic? Oh, or were you just sure. curious? Uh, you know, 
honestly, looking back, it was um, it was more about the Bermuda Triangle. That's what I remember hearing the most about during the 80s were these Time Life magazine and books about uh, the psychic energy and um, the riveting Loch Ness Monster. And Bigfoot fit on that category and all the school bookshelves. It was just right between all these subject matters. So I thought all that stuff was super interesting and probably real too, because they seemed just as credible by witness testimony. So I took it at face value that eventually something's going to happen. So I, I never really questioned it, but I never really, you know, I didn't have any friends that really followed my interest with it. So it was just kind of a thing I did at home. Let's talk about the point at which you decided to make a film. Now, tell me, you're, you're the uh, producer. I'm just going to make sure I understand the roles here. Just a, a lowly co-producer. <laughs> I don't know about lowly, but um, <laughs> projects like this are, pa are projects of passion, of course. Um, you know, I've, I've, I know enough filmmakers, particularly when it gets into documentary filmmaking, they're projects of passion and they're, and they're almost a quest unto themselves to get some kind of answers. Talk to me, Toby, about how you got started with this particular project. It came down to, I believe, a message board or a phone call. And uh, I, at that point, I was living already on the property studying uh, this place I call the Al Moon Lab with the Adams family, believe it or not. That's their names. And we were researching full time with uh, Cindy and Daryl Adams at their house. Daryl recently retired. And Brett and Jill were looking for a story like ours, which made extraordinary claims that we have... Um, this overlapping Sasquatch phenomena. And so um, we, we sat down with them and uh, started to tell them our story. And, uh, you know, the things have uh, taken off for them since that time, of course. But, yeah, that's initially how it started. And, Brett, you, you entered, entered this project ready to make a film. You've, you've had a bunch of films under your belt already, some some, uh, I guess they wouldn't be considered documentaries. You did some documentary shorts. Uh, you saw this project. What lit your eyes up about it? Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, <laughs> everything, everything lit our eyes up about it. I think it's, I think the fundamental question that we have is, you know, if there's something out there that's, that's humanoid, that, that's a cousin of ours or, or even deeper than that, uh, we should know about it. We should know about it for a variety of reasons. One reason is is that we can learn from them and they can learn from us. Now, with that being said, um, you know, this isn't something that we want to do to exploit them, you know, and I have a firm belief about that. I believe that uh, they most likely want to be alone. I'm certain that many of them want to be left alone, but I'm certain that some of them don't necessarily want to be alone. I think that, that they have reached out to certain individuals um, on purpose to maintain a communication with humans. Um, and so I think, you know, I think that was a huge part about it, you know, especially with all the UFO stuff that's going on right now. And, you know, people are looking to the skies to see our cousins or whatever these aliens might be or whatever this technology might be, time travelers, you name it. And I thought, you know what, we're looking to the sky, but we should be looking into the trees. And, you know, I would challenge anybody to drive through the Pacific Northwest, through the Cascades, the Oregon Coast Range or anything, and see further than about 25 feet into the forest. You know, we talk about this in the documentary about how pilots fly over the woods and they just get disorientated because it's a, it's a carpet, it's thick. And I think it's foolish for somebody to claim that, um, 
if if in fact Bigfoot is real, that it would have been discovered by now. Um, I tell you what, buddy, get in a plane, fly out of Portland, fly all the way up to um, about the tip of Alaska, and you're going to be flying over forest the entire way. So there's, you know, there's a lot of questions to be answered or try and answer. And I think even in turn, we've, we've act, actually come up with a lot more questions than answers. Yeah, Brett, you make a really good point there because most of us only know the areas around us from the roads we drive on. Every, and, I, and I found this out as a snowmobile. I started taking, you know, the snowmobile trails, and I'd end up in places that looked very unfamiliar to me. When I, and then I realized, you know, 20 feet away, there's a road I'm on all the time. But from this perspective, it's a very different view. So, and, and people lose sight of the fact that there is so much vastness between some of those roads. So your point about the amount of available, undeveloped, um, very uh, thick, thickly uh, vegetated uh land particularly in the pacific northwest is is very valid and gives whether it's bigfoot or some other type of creature that we haven't discovered yet a lot of room to remain we'll, we'll say hidden mm -hmm. yeah that's exactly right 70 percent of north america is untouched by man that's a that's a big number so i mean the the possibilities of something being out there are huge however the the kink in that if you will is that these things know how to hide uh, they understand i don't know whether they understand the fundamentals of what a camera does or they hear the the electronics of a camera but they they are intelligent enough to know what one is and how to avoid it but and that's not always true um sometimes people get pictures of them um you know, Patterson Gimlin obviously is a very famous example of that, and that keeps that's that's being proven more and more real as technology assesses it. So, you know, there's and then and then we get into the paranormal realm, which is going to be chapter two. I mean, are these things able to cloak? Are they able to disappear? Are they, you know, what other sort of abilities do they have that we don't fully understand? Yeah, Toby, uh, there have been a lot of documentaries and attempts at documentaries some of them have been highly and widely discredited and i'm not going to name names what makes your film different well it's a narrative about the witness and it's done in such a poetic way that it brings audiences to tears i don't know too many bigfoot documentaries uh, that are able to do that and it steers the hour and 44 minutes in such a way that uh most people are just gobsmacked at what they just saw. It, it belongs on an IMAX screen. It, uh, in fact, almost was pitched as such, but it, uh, it's, it's a mind-blowing cinematic masterpiece in so many ways that I was just, you know, it was a pleasure being a part of it just to watch how they work. But then when you get an idea of, you know, getting these voices out there that have never talked about the psychological ramifications or people that um, have dealt with this privately maybe for years and they're connected now through these friendships like me and Daryl are. It's almost like watching two guys at the VA talking about, you know, the Battle of the Bulge or something like that. Like w these people are war buddies now. And um, it's, uh, it's always humbling to wander into other war buddies. And that's... That's something that they captured here, so I was touched by that and and a lot more. Yeah, I mean, if to use that analogy, veterans have an instant connection with one another 
when they begin talking, as though they've been friends for a lifetime, just because of that shared experience. You found the same to be true with Bigfoot experiencers? There is, because, um, yeah. Go ahead, Brett. Oh, oh, I was just going to elaborate on the emotional impact and why that's what really sets us apart, I believe, from other documentaries is we went into this going, there's nothing out there right now that talks about the emotional impact of seeing something that doesn't exist in real life, you know, and, and there is a, there's an emotional impact that's equivalent to post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, much like Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind has this profound experience in his truck at a railroad stop with a UFO lifting up and getting the sunburn, so on and so forth. These people have, you know, and that lasted, what, 30 seconds, maybe a minute. Right. The people that have had, sorry about that, because my light. The people <laughs> that have had experiences with Bigfoot are, are much the same way. It changes them permanently. And, and so you have to ask yourself, if somebody's out in the woods and they see a nine foot tall, uh, well, let me rephrase that. If somebody's out in the woods and they see a bear, they come home and they're excited about seeing a bear and they go back to work and everything's fine. Well, you know, there's folks out there, hunters that have been hunting since the, the age of 12, 13 years old. They're now in their forties. They see a Bigfoot. They lock eyes with the Bigfoot. They have an emotional connection with the Bigfoot and they're done. That's it. The love of their life, their passion of their life of hunting is done. They will not go back into the woods. So, I mean, the skeptics out there will be like, yeah, it could have been something else. No, it's not. It's just not. It's they have had a traumatic experience that has rocked them to the core. And we wanted to address that. So we interviewed a psychologist, a Yale educated psychologist and a hypnotherapist. And they go into great detail about how the brain works, how it plays back, how we protect ourselves when we see something we can't explain or we see something that we have a hard time dealing with. And that really becomes kind of the reinforcement, if you will, to a lot of these eyewitness sightings. Do you guys mind if I play the trailer for the for the film? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. about it's about two minutes long, so here we go. I'm looking at this giant figure, huge, eight feet tall, non-human gate. I'm trying to classify what this thing is, but it, it's not real. And I know what it is, but what it is is not real. The arms of these things went well below their knees, unbelievably long arms. When I looked up, there was a young male looking at me. Something's going around my tent. It stops behind me, and then contact. We tried. We really tried to get pictures, but these things seemed out foxes. Something something is leaving footprints. As you start utilizing the data and you start seeing the data tell the story, the whole story unfolds right before your eyes. The way it pulled its little one, its young behind it with its arm. I mean, I can't even put it in words. It was so unreal. Knowing about them, it seemed too intelligent for me to like consider them as like something you could go out and hunt like an animal. That is, whoa. So these were brought here. I had one client talk about how muscular it was and how broad its shoulders were and how it's like, just was in awe of this incredibly majestic creature. You will always have that with you. You will always remember that moment. When he was walking away, I called out to him, 
You're the most beautiful creature in the world. Please don't go. I was that person. I did not believe. I just thought it was a myth. Open up your minds because they're out there. First of all, let me just say it's it's I haven't had a chance to see the film, but just the trailer alone illustrates Toby how beautifully shot this was and how well produced it is. So kudos on that. But the other thing I find very striking and just the, the few clips you have in the trailer there, if you look into the eyes of the people telling their stories, there is a, a, a genuineness to that to those stories. You can see just and you guys had to capture that. Uh, I'm sure as you were sitting there listening to the stories, Toby, uh, you were feeling more emotion than we can even see just in the eyes. Well, I wasn't there for a lot of the filming. I helped set up some of the interviews and the witnesses that uh, spoke on camera. But uh, for the most part, um, you know, I work a full-time job and uh, I'm a struggling artist like the rest of the people in Washington. So for me, it was, um, you know, it was always an earshot away uh, from a phone call from Brett and Jill. But, um, you know, having lived that story myself and the strangeness that occurred you know, we were we were happy to meet people, uh, you know, as far as um, having these shared experiences together. Yeah. Brett, same question. I mean, uh, as you were filming these folks, you must have felt that emotion that, that was clearly visible in their faces and their eyes from what we just saw. Oh, yeah. The emotion was thick in the room. There, there, there isn't a single person on camera that that didn't have an emotional response at some point or another. And not every single person in this film has had a Bigfoot sighting, but they have had some sort of an experience or another, whether it's been a sound or, you know, Stan Avery is kind of the um, uh, the town collector, if you will. He's a, he's a plumber in Bandon, Oregon. And so people, um, you know, or he's like a confidant. People tell them his stories and even he had emotional responses. So, you know, there were many, 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 many times we interviewed, I think, close to 40 people. There were many times where we would get choked up as filmmakers. We would need to pause. We would need to give them a moment. Um, and what was so great for us as filmmakers is everybody was extremely comfortable sharing their story. And, you know, it's a challenge to look into a camera lens and tell your story. It's not easy. And these folks did such a wonderful job. And, you know, it was easier for some folks than it was for others. You know, there was an individual, Mark Parker, who was the hunter I was talking about earlier. And he was, he was you know, at first reluctant to go on camera. But uh, once he got up there, got some deep breaths and got back into his story, he was able to really go back to that time and place. And, and we were able to capture that. And I, I, I know the audience feels it. Did you have an, any of these experiencers, whether they actually had a direct encounter or maybe they just came across some other type of evidence, footprints or otherwise, and we're talking about, do you have any of them say, okay, first you got to tell me, you're going to make me look like a fool if I tell you my story? Did you have any of that, Brett? No, um, we did talk about that a little bit, you know, um, going back to Mark real quick, he wasn't sure he even wanted to tell his spouse. Mm because he was afraid of what she would think. And I think he waited maybe a week before he told her. Mm. Um, so I don't know that, you know, and, and part of the advantage that we have, I think to a certain extent, and you know, coming from the narrative side of filmmaking is that we understand the, the um, 
vulnerability of actors and how to work with actors and how to make them feel comfortable on camera sure. because yeah. it doesn't matter who you are i mean you know many many actors in the feature film business are um believe it or not uh introverts and they're very shy people it's it's when they get in front of the camera they feel like they can be somebody else is when they feel like they can be out in the open and um, we didn't start rolling cameras until we were ready so a lot of the times as we're setting up lights and cameras and stuff we're having small talk you know we really want to get to know these people so we target the questions correctly so we get a sense of who they are you know this isn't just a story of a sighting this is a human a real life emotional human experience and that's the importance of this movie toby you a lot of this comes from personal experiences you have had as well right you you had your own experience as it as it relates to this I did. Um, I, you know, I chased it down. I called myself an ambulance chaser. That means I followed up on latent Bigfoot sightings, spending, you know, several years doing mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I found out it was a whole lot easier embracing them coming to you. Well, how do you do that? Well, you wait at an extended experiencer's house and listen to what they say happens. Uh, as, as unbelievable as that sounds, um, these repeat experiences at people's locations or their property or their acreage or their business um, is probably way more common than people know. I think it happens in nuances. And if you feed it, then it starts to amp up a little bit. And I maybe mean that literally, maybe I mean that figuratively, but uh, if you feed the phenomena, pay attention to it or literally leave out snacks, uh, things seem to amp up in you know, locations, hot spots around that uh, given area. So we just locked eyes with this phenomena. The witness was, um, like I said, uh, recently retired and he had nothing but time on his hand and I was freshly divorced. And so we just hung out for the period of, well, we still hang out, uh, but there was a time when we recorded over 1400 hours worth of audio um, and did review over that audio. and we knew that we had something coming to the house because you could plainly hear it arriving. And then, you know, magnificent displays of giant greasy handprints and various locations, hair, these giant knee impressions, footprints, and eventual sighting, strange gifts, uh, animal mutilations. And um, all these things are just the tip of the spear when it comes to strangeness. And uh, that's why there had to be a part two. You um, so don't forget the yeah. uh, the blackberry sneeze too. <laughs> oh, the yeah, he's referring sneeze. to um, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'm in the process here. You know, when I after I um, got a divorce, I uh, bought a 17 foot long Rainier Dutchman trailer, pulled it on the property, and said, "I'm going to research Bigfoot finally the way it's supposed to be." I've got all this free time, and um, there was a moment where we were recording there and I was working a strange grave, graveyard shift and um, we'd gotten used to, like I said, reviewing something arriving and leaving and then leaving traces of itself. I got home uh, around 11 o'clock on a summer day and underneath the awning, which was exposed because it was hot, uh, underneath the awning was my recorder sitting in the rail and these blackberries that were coming out from underneath the awning and going out to the forest and we've gotten used to hearing stuff out that way and so just like a trail of breadcrumbs i followed it out to the tree line i was like well dummy go grab the recorder and so i was running all night and so i'm listening to the recorder listening to the recorder 
and I hear this magnificent sound of something masticating, walking on the gravel, and then this um, sneeze, this juicy, <laughs> wet sneeze. And I go back to the awning, and I look up, and about seven and a half feet up is this about 12-inch blackberry stain that's dripping, you know, just oh, wow. dried up blackberry seeds and spit. Now, why didn't I collect it as a DNA sample? I don't know. I mean, you get so excited about this stuff. I don't care who you are. You need other people around you to remind you, you know, what you should do. But um, I, I don't know what kind of person would hoax something like that. Yeah. Brett, I mean, that's part of the problem with this particular phenomenon. There are so many people that have had experiences. And then you say, well, you know, you had your phone. Did you get a picture? But they happen in a flash. And you don't always think. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation where the after, and it hasn't been a Bigfoot encounter, which would be absolutely, you know, striking and and startling. But I've been in a situation where after the fact, I said, why the heck didn't I just take a picture of that? You know, whether it was a, a car hitting something and or whatever, you know, you just don't think that quickly. At least I don't. But I think that's probably pretty common, Brett. It's extremely common. We're humans first, photographers second, sometimes photographers third and fourth, because you know, our primordial instincts kick in and we're concerned about our safety. You know, we're seeing something that we need to digest. So the first inclination is not to always pull out your phone and take a picture. And the other thing about that too, is you don't want to miss it. You know, if you, if you pull out your phone and you look down and you're trying, you're fiddling with something, it's going to be gone. Right. It's gone in a flash of beauty. And this, this, this is true with any form of wildlife. I mean, you know, you, you, you show me some amateurs out there that have gotten National Geographic type photos of cougars or wolverines or anything else that's rare in the wild. You know, what people don't really know is that in order to get those types of photo photos, there's guys out in blinds for sometimes weeks at a time. You know, there's a famous story about a, a guy trying to capture a snow leopard, one of the most rare animals in the face of the planet. He was up in the Pakistani mountains for six weeks every day in a blind waiting for someone to something to come by and on the very last day as he's about to pack up sure enough here comes a snow leopard and this phenomenon tends to work in much the same way and you kind of have to ask yourself about even about that snow leopard is there a coincidence there or was was that particular guy being played you know um same thing with the bigfoot do 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 they know that we have the capability of taking pictures of them and you know purposely avoid us um chad and austin that that are in our documentary would say so they had cameras they they specifically went out into the wilderness and went out to record survival videos and they had a campsite about maybe 100 150 feet up from a lake it was a bit of a steep climb and they left the cameras up there went down to the lake to go fishing and sure enough here's a bigfoot and it's it's child it's juvenile child sitting there on a log and they had no way of taking photos of it and Chad and Austin both believe that had they had a camera in their hand, they never would have that sighting. So I know the skeptics out there are probably going, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, this happens on and on and on and on again. Yeah. Toby, as you're collecting the stories, putting the film together, doing all of this work and the other research that you did leading up to the film, what type of things um, surprised you? Did, were, did, did any of the stories strike you as being completely out of something that you had considered previously or is there anything else in this process that just surprised you about the whole thing sure there's some surprises um surprises all over the place in this doc 
Uh, one I'll talk about is regarding the, um, the hypnotherapist, Doug Meacham. And I've seen his work before on videotape. He worked with someone who had a regression over a Bigfoot and a men in black scenario. That's about an hour and a half session, if I recall. And um, seeing him explain what he was performing is, uh, is quite a thing. I mean, it's literally someone who has a memory that's trapped in their subconscious somewhere that they can't unlock it and they need somebody can bring it out in a way that's almost like putting in a VHS tape and you can fast forward, rewind, pause, stop, slow-mo, all of these memories here and uh, have him explain that in a way that uh, came across as credible because uh, I believe he is credible and I believe this, uh, this practice is credible. Um, uh, you know, I, I wonder what benefits would come of me or Daryl utilizing this because I don't know if we have all our memories in, in perfect order over this. Yeah. Um, one of the things, Brett, that you have said, or at least uh, it's it's uh, listening here and some of the ideas that, that you like to discuss is the idea that if someone was to harm a Bigfoot, that should be a crime. Is that something that you that you believe? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I, absolutely. And I think that there are many people that would agree with me. Um, these things are too human-like for, for us to be, you know, uh, killing one, murdering one, whatever you want to call it, to in the name of science. And I think that, um, you know, the time is going to come at some point or another that we're going to find one. Um, you know, I mean, I don't want to go down another rabbit hole of government conspiracy theories, but we've got a credible, very credible source in our documentary that talks about how the government does have the bodies. There's many eyewitnesses to the government with um, evacuating um, Bigfoot bodies from Mount St. Helens natural disaster area before rescue teams could get in there. That was a military operation. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that really solves anything. There has been some laws that have been passed in Oregon. Um, there's a, there's a law that was passed in, I believe, Skamania County that makes it a, a crime to kill a Bigfoot. They were having so many Bigfoot sightings in, um, Skamania County that, that they got together and they said, you know what, we should make this a law. We should protect these things. And the other thing too, is it protects other humans. You know, because the last thing we need are a bunch of, uh, like Stan Avery says in our film, primates out hunting more primates. So I think there's a lot of really good reasons for it. And and these aren't, frankly, these aren't things we want to make mad. Yeah, <laughs> I actually had that article. and That's one reason I introduced this, this question, because I was going to ask you what you thought about it. You just referenced it. This article uh, showed up, I guess, a day ago. It's illegal to kill Bigfoot in Skamania County, Washington. One of the things I thought was interesting about this article, though, is it says uh, the ordinance rests on evidence, which it says continues to accumulate regarding the possible existence within Skamania County of, no of a nocturnal primate mammal. Mammal. It describes Bigfoot or Sasquatch as, quote, an ape-like creature of subspecies or subspecies of Homo sapiens. Um I don't like the picture they used here uh, because it almost makes it seem a little comical. Uh, however, uh, it seems like more and more communities, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, are starting to recognize this, Toby, as though they're starting to say, okay, all right, something's out there and we either have to protect it or we've got to start codifying something in relation to this creature. Uh, is that a bit of a vindication for you, for some of these people who've had experiences who maybe haven't been believed in the past? 
You know, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of it is tongue in cheek. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, what happened in Roswell after the mayor went out and then had to eat crow, uh, not Roswell, but in uh, Arizona after the Phoenix Lights. And these uh, government bodies kind of insert themselves in the conversation because it is either topical, it gets eyeballs looking at them. Um, I know some of these things have been done for like their grandkids, as far as like adding faith to, you know, their grandkids wishes or something to that effect. So I don't know what the legitimacy of something like that is, but um, what if you look at what's going on right now with soft disclosure over the UFOs, we can't be too far behind. Right. There's just a lot that can be taken away from Bigfoot research regarding what's going on with the UFO researchers. We're just we're so far behind them, and I think that uh, we have combined interest. I don't know if the UFO people believe that, but I, there's a lot of cross pollination going on with sightings. Yeah, and something that Brett brought up just a minute ago, Toby, I want your opinion on it. A lot of the people, particularly heavy skeptics, will say, well, why haven't we discovered body, a body or bones, some kind of physical evidence in that regard? If they're, if they're living creatures, they have to die at some point, and we should be able to find some kind of evidence. Do you have an opinion on that, or did you get it, uh, opinions during the process of making the documentary on that that you want to share? Mm -hmm. uh, it's weird, isn't it? It's pretty weird. And, you know, the lack of evidence seems to be evidence for something go else going on. That's how I look at it. Something else must be going on. Um, and like uh, our buddy Rich Jermo, who's in the film, said, he goes, they're not coming to you asking questions. They may want some evidence, but they're not grilling you. They know what's going on. And um, however they dispose or wherever the bones go to eventually. I've heard people say that they bury them under trees. Um, I don't think that this is just the forest being, you know, super productive. I know that it can do, I know what the forest can do to a corpse, but um, it doesn't seem to get rid of bones that quick. And you find bear skulls, you find rare animal skulls, and you just don't find giant hybrid monkey skulls out in the forest it hasn't really happened not that i know so you said the lack of evidence is evidence that something else is going on do you mean something like an alien connection an interdimensional uh, aspect to this is that what you meant or something else well yeah you know uh, our buddy who's in the film ron moorhead talks a lot about I know, ron. i've had ron on the show and, before um, yeah right so, uh, you know, Ron is a bit of a mentor for me. I built uh, giant Bigfoots for him in the past, and they're over here in museums in Forks, Washington now. So um, Ron's kind of a friend of the family here for Brett and myself and my girlfriend. And um, Ron told me early on, he's just like, eventually I'm going to have to start talking about the weird stuff because people won't shut up about it. You know, and him and Scott Nelson had a pact, uh, the cryptolinguist that is um, working on the sounds for Ron. Um, they had a pact that they were not going to talk about the crazy stuff when they went on the lecture circuit. And then finally, over a couple of beers, it's just like, we can't have this pact anymore. It's kind of like hurting us. Like we can't speak freely. And so um, very strange stuff have happened in the high Sierras to not only Ron, but just the amount of what the Hoopa have said about that area and uh, the work of David Polites. And our own experiences in uh, the redwoods in southern Oregon. So there's some strange stuff that happen uh, when you're around Bigfoot, and 
I don't think we're ever going to fully understand it. And that's okay with me. I love a good mystery. I, I hope I never find a Bigfoot skull because then it will just be seem, you know, more physical to me and solvable. So I'm not in it for that. Yeah. Um, Brett, there's a question here. You kind of touched on it before, but in the chat room, a bunch of questions flowing through. I just happened to catch one quickly. Uh, Steph in our chat wants to know if you think that uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch can hear or sense. She says the frequency of cameras, but I'm assuming the electronic noise that a camera might make or maybe even other equipment, not just cameras. I, yeah, absolutely. That's my theory is that they can they can hear the frequency of cameras. And if we remember back to, to, to when we were children, um, children can hear higher frequencies than adults. We lose that ability as we age. And, you know, I remember as a child walking into a room and hearing the buzz or the whir of a TV, you know, that high pitched sound. And, and um, you know, there's, there's, there's places that they'll use that as a deterrent to keep kids from hanging out at 7-Elevens. You know, they'll play a high-pitched sound that adults don't hear when they go in and out for their Slurpees. So I, I think that absolutely. I mean, you know, the other point about that, too, is that, that human beings can only perceive 1%, 1% of the visible light spectrum. So we're not seeing 99 We're blind, basically, to 99% of the light, light wave spectrum. Um, and so I think that's that's very much the case with audio. Now, I'm no expert, but that's my theory. I have to share a quick story based on what you just said. So my son is in his, is in his 20s now. Uh, he was building this computer set up for gaming. And he needed a couple extra monitors. He said, Dad, do you have any extra monitors? I got a ton of extra equipment. So I said, yeah, here you go. And he set them up. And he's like, how the hell did you use these monitors? This makes this high-pitched noise. I can't stand it. And he brings the monitor back to me. I plug it in. I don't hear anything. I heard nothing. But he could hear the high-pitched noise from the monitor and couldn't use it. It was so bad, which I felt was a bit comical. I'm not saying I'm old. I'm not going to admit to that. I'm older, yeah. not old. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, so we're getting close to the end of our time here. I, I need to ask both of you kind of the follow-up to the, one of the first questions I asked you. Toby, after making this film... What changed about your perception or your ideas, your concept or your beliefs as it relates to Bigfoot? Well, I, um, I thought I could judge character of witnesses. And, um, you know, I watch a lot of these YouTube channels and follow up on other witness testimony. And I thought I was really good at reading body language. And I don't think I'm that good at it. Um, I was, you know, my girlfriend felt the same way. And, um, I almost feel like I need to start over again, um, understanding witness body language. I, th I thought I had that honed in, but, um, you know, I have to eat crow with that. So that's been a strange one. And then, of course, I've talked a little bit about this is the connection with um, megalithic structures being in a lot of Bigfoot areas or what I would call power spots. That's something unexpected. And, uh, you know, we'll see where that leads for a, maybe a next book or something. Yeah, Brett, same question. Uh, you know, you had a starting point, you make the film. How did your ending point change from your starting point in your ideas, beliefs, thoughts on the Sasquatch phenomenon? That's a great question. Um, and there's a ton of answers. I mean, I mean, my, my thought process has changed considerably from the beginning and it continues to, 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 to change. What I'm really looking for is I'm looking for a scientific explanation for all of this. And um, I believe that, you know, just like Ron Moorhead, I'm a huge believer in his book, The Quantum Bigfoot. And I really believe that there is a science 
explanation that lies in quantum mechanics, quantum physics, um, you know, and physicists are looking at how um, strange molecules behave and how they can behave. And I think that the answer to a lot of this phenomenon lies in that arena because Newtonian science, frankly, in my opinion, is outdated. It just, it, it isn't working. Um, it isn't helping. I think people keep falling back on it. You know, it's what now 600 some odd years old. Um, but quantum physics does fill in a lot of those blanks, you know, because quantum physics talks about parallel u universes and uh, different dimensions, so on and so forth. So getting into that aspect of it was really interesting. I, you know, I thought this was going to be more of um, a wild goose chase looking for, you know, the big guy, if you will, um, and some strangeness, but um, it's turned into a little bit of a science lesson on top of it. Toby, two, the, the documentary is in two parts, right? Why two parts? Two parts because of the amount of hours of footage that they had for the original cut. And then it's only fair to do it because it's a bifurcated phenomenon where people think flesh and blood is the only answer. And then you have this other category that I fit into is uh, there's this question mark about what's going on. And so um, that's the way it needed to be done uh, for it to be an honest and pure film. All right. Tell me where people can see the film. I believe it was available as of May 31st. So it's been out like a week. Is that right? Where I don't I don't care. Yeah, it's been out go ahead. Go a ahead, week Brett. today. Yeah, go ahead. Where can people see it? Yeah, yeah, it's been it's. So they can see it. Um, it's also worldwide. I don't know the exact countries right now, but I know they can see it in the UK, for instance. It's on iTunes in Canada. Um, but it's it's Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, um, iTunes. Uh, I believe the Microsoft Store slash Xbox has it. Um, Tob, am I forgetting anything? Oh, you can boy. find it. YouTube. You can rent it on YouTube. Telemundo. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah everywhere no, no not yet not yet but it yet. it is everywhere it's not hard to find mm -hmm. um you know mm -hmm. a lot of people have asked us um if we're moving to you know a netflix or a subscription-based service and my answer to that right now is we're not sure typically you know new releases kind of hang out in the rental department before being moved to a 2b or or something that's ad supported so that might be a, a little while before that happens but um I'll tell you what, I feel like we packed in a lot of value for uh, $4.99 for a rental. So, um, in fact, we've had many, many, many people tell us they've watched it twice. So, and I think you can watch it as many times as you want in 48 hours. So, I would encourage you to, to rent it. Toby, is this the end of the quest or the beginning of the quest for you? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we'll see what happens with uh, the state of the world right now. I hope it's not the end of the quest, uh, not not on my own accord. So, no, never the end. Are there any projects in the in the works that you want to talk about? I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but anything else uh, that you, have have you set your sights on something yeah. else? I guess. I'm curious about uh, these spaces in between that quantum physics describe, and how many people have accessed them. Nice. Brett, you've got other work. I'm sure you'd like to mention where people might be able to see some of the other stuff you do as well. Yeah. So we've got a, a film people might enjoy called Light of Mine. It's kind of a slow burner, but it's about a photographer who's losing his eyesight. Um, 
and so he goes to Yellowstone to photograph it before he goes he goes blind. And that was a film that we made about 10, 12 years ago, 10 years ago. I'm losing track of time. But anyways, that's on Amazon. We did another film called Pretty Broken, which is um, a dramedy about a, a young woman whose father goes missing in the Himalayas, and she's determined to bring him home. Now, none of these have anything to do with the paranormal and or Bigfoot. These are entirely different films. But, um, you know, I think they're, they're, they're a bit different than the regular stuff that the regular stuff that's out there that that people might enjoy they can they can check those out and again all the other platforms i just mentioned that that um bigfoot revealed is on or flash of beauty is on um and the one thing i the, one of one of the things i do want to mention real quick is we have a kickstarter campaign going on right now to finish our second film um a flash of beauty was self-funded we we you know in the middle of the pandemic we scraped up some savings and put the movie together. And um, so now we're asking for just a little bit of help in order to get the second chapter finished. Uh, like Tobe said, we have most of it shot, but um, there's still some traveling that we need to do, possibly a return trip to Alaska. Uh, so that you can find on Kickstarter if you type in a flash of beauty um, and you know any help is appreciated. Toby, uh, the owl, Owl Moon Lab. Uh, that's mm -hmm. what's that? What can people find if they seek that out? Sure, it's an interactive story. So um, think about uh, you know almost like a choose your own adventure book uh, where you uh, read through my encounter story in the strange town of Cottage Grove, and uh, you can scan your phone over these QR codes that take you directly to that chapter where the audio or the video was captured. Nice. And you've got a website as well. Um, let's see. What is it here? Bigfootdoc.com. People can go there. Will that have links to, to where they can see the film and, and a little more information about what's going on? Yeah, we got links. We got coffee mugs. We got trucker hats. We got hoodies. We got T-shirts. Nice. So you can wear the film while watching the film. So <laughs> awesome. I don't think we have socks, but if anyone wants any, they can let us know. So, yeah. Head on over. <laughs> awesome. Guys, thanks so much for being here. And best of luck with this particular project, uh, the, the upcoming projects. And uh, I appreciate your time here tonight. Really, really informative. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, JV. All right. Thank you. Yep. All right. So, again, BigfootDoc.com if you want more information. And, of course, um, as you heard, there's a number of places you can see the documentary. Uh, it's a documentary in two parts. So, um um, be aware of that as well. But uh, uh, as you saw in the trailer, it's just really beautifully shot. And the stories that are being shared are obviously very, very heartfelt as well. And um, you can see it in the folks' eyes, which is what struck me right away when I saw that that trailer. So uh, take time and check it out. Again, the website is BigfootDoc.com. All right, so let's do a couple trivia questions. By the way, um, there is an 800-pound gorilla in the room that I need to address here. Yes, I got a haircut. I'm not saying it's a good one, but I did get one. And I'd been complaining for a long time about how long my hair was. So I finally got over myself and went and got it. Because you know how much I hate to go get my hair cut. just absolutely hate it. But it was so long and in my face that I had to do it. So again, I'm not proud of the haircut. But it is shorter. So oh, that's not the 800-pound gorilla you guys were talking about? Oh, that one. Yeah, okay. So as you know, for the last uh, couple of months, I've had a co-host on the program. And uh, um, he's not here tonight. And you're wondering why Britt isn't here tonight. Well, Britt has decided that he is uh, gonna needs to spend his time doing some other things. 
So he will not be co-hosting the program with me any longer. So it brings, it brings the program back to what I was doing prior to the last two months, which was hosting it alone. And I'm perfectly okay with that. Uh, we'll miss Brett and his shenanigans. However, um, you know, we wish him luck too. We hope, we hope uh, he, he's successful in his other projects. So good luck. Anyway, uh, let's do a couple trivia questions and we'll call it a night. I think it's late for everybody. So let's do that. Is everybody ready for some trivia? I am. All right. Here we go. Question number one. Uh, who wrote the Who wrote the House on Mango Street, which is a celebrated coming-of-age novel about a Mexican-American girl named Esperanza Cordero growing up in Chicago? Who wrote the House on Mango Street, a celebrated coming-of-age novel about a Mexican-American girl named Esperanza Cordero growing up in Chicago? I don't know. I have n- I've never even heard that of that book. I have no idea what that is. Hey, it's Sammo. Poskin loves everything. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, this is a great story. These guys did a great job with their film. And uh, I have not seen it uh, in preparation for this, but I'm going to get a chance to watch it after the fact. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, There, you know, I've seen a lot of Bigfoot documentaries and there's been a lot of hastily thrown together Bigfoot documentaries. This is not one of them, from what I can tell. This looks really, really um, thought thought through well, and the interviews are very genuine. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it is a hard question. I don't know. I don't pick. I don't pick them. They're just on the trivia question of the day calendar here. Which, by the way, we're still in August of 2021. That's how far behind we are. All right. Final uh, asking of the question: Who wrote the House on Mango Street? a celebrated coming-of-age novel about a Mexican-American girl named Esperanza Cordero growing up in Chicago. Who, who wrote that? Let's see, what do we have here? No clue. <laughs> Scooter with all of her clothes off. Thank you, Scooter. Uh, Judy Bloom. <laughs> um, Rita Moreno. Mm. You don't know, but you wonder if it's the sequel to Esper- Esperanza Rising? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um... Yeah, if you want to follow, if you want to follow Britt, look for his lawnmower racing thing, whatever it is. I don't even know. I'm not really that interested in it. Um, okay, so the answer to the question is: here we go. Uh, Sandra Cisneros. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. Uh, the House on Mango Street was her first novel, but she went on to publish several other titles, including a short story collection, Women, Woman Hollering. <laughs> can't read this woman hollering creek and other stories i don't know i don't know if that's i don't even know let's go to the next question because that one was horrible here we go which beloved animated tv show tells the story of a boy named ang who must bring peace to a fantasy world on the brink brink of destruction which beloved animated tv show tells the story of a boy named named ang who must bring peace to a fantasy world on the brink of destruction. Who would that be? Oh, whoops, sorry. Sorry about that. I don't know. I, these these questions are, are really bad. We've got to find a better source of questions. <laughs> I have a 2022 calendar over here. I haven't even opened it because we're still on August of 2021. Avatar The Last Airbender? I don't know if that's a Real answer? Which beloved animated TV show tells the story of a boy named Aang who must bring peace to a fantasy world on the brink of destruction? Aang. A-A-N-G. A-A-N-G. 
What did you think was a legit question, Toey? Last Airbender, I was I Iowa agrees with uh, Hoss. Okay. All right. Question is again: what, Which beloved animated TV show tells the story of a boy named Ang who must bring peace to a fantasy world on the brink of destruction? I don't know about being a beloved TV show. I've never even heard. Uh, you guys are right. It's Avatar: The Last Airbender. I've never seen it. The show aired from 2005 to 2008. Can't be that beloved if it only lasted three years and uh, nabbed an Emmy among other Emmy <laughs> Emmy among other awards. Yikes. Yeah, again, how can it be so beloved if it was only on for, I guess that might be considered four years. It didn't last very long. Final question, guys. Uh, I asked if Britt moved on to pursue his porn career. Uh, yeah, maybe he did that too. Porn and lawnmower racing. Yeah. All right, final question. Here we go. What is the proper term used to describe someone who practices karate? Practices karate. What is the appropriate or the proper term used to describe someone who practices karate? Karate. Yeah, you got it, Fitty. It is Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, I'm still doing the Independence Gang, Steph. I'm still doing the Independence Gang. I just I have to shovel things because this the show I'm doing in the afternoons now. This 1 p.m. It's America called America's Lunchroom is taking off. Uh, we had a hundred thousand viewers last weekend. We had uh, we're getting about twenty thousand views a day on it. So I'm I'm putting more effort into that particular show versus the Independence Gang. Uh, and I need I need to find some help with the Independence Gang. You know when I had a co-host. A regular co-host, because I've got great fill-in co-hosts. But when I had a regular co-host, I could, you know, some of the work could be done, uh, and I didn't have to do it. So I need to, I need to restructure that. I need to figure out how we do it. But I really enjoy that show because it gives me an opportunity to vent. And I'm talking about the in Independence Gang, America's Lunchroom. Uh, a little bit different approach. It's it's an attempt to be not an attempt to be funny. It's it's an attempt to take a lighter look at this stuff and laugh a little bit during the middle of the day. So, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the afternoon shows has been, is really taking off. We actually, we're getting some great, uh, guest inquiries, people asking if they can be on. Um, yeah. So anyway, what's the proper term used to describe someone who practices karate or karate, whichever you prefer. If you're Russ, Ross Geller, you'll say karate. Is it popular, Fiddy? I, I don't. I'm not doubting it is, but it can't be that popular if it only lasted a few years. I mean, you know, South Park's on like 30 years now. I call that popular, or I call that beloved. What was the way they described it? Mm, let's see. Thanks, Par Five. We try to have fun. The dif difficulty with America's Lunchroom is there isn't always funny stuff in the news. Sometimes you really have to stretch it to find something to laugh about. And sometimes we're, we're serious about it, too. Sometimes you just have to be serious, which we allow ourselves that flexibility as well. Um, okay. What is the proper term used to describe someone who practices karate? I, didn't, I haven't seen anybody answer this with any. What format? I don't know. I, I'm just reading the question as it is. Um, oh, somebody's actually said this, and I thought they were joking. I thought they were joking. Where is the answer that I? Oh, Kelsey said it. Karateka? I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, karatika, karatika, maybe 
Karatika, for example, the Karatika was highly trained. Karatika. Nice job, Kelsey. Must be you study karate. Yeah, that's right, Gina. A laugh is good for us. That's why we need to do it because so much of the news is depressing. We want to laugh. We want to smile, have a little bit of fun. That's what it's about. All right, that's going to do it for tonight, guys. Thanks for being here. Again, thank you to our two guests, um, Toby Johnson and uh, Brad Eichenberger. Um, it was really, really great to have them on. Their film is called, again, I want to make sure I get it right. It is um, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed. And uh, their website is bigfootdoc.com. Have a great night, and we will see you tomorrow if you check in at 1 o'clock for the uh, America's Lunchroom. And that is primarily, uh, we do that on the Independence Gang Foxhole channel, plus a bunch of Getter channels, including mine. Uh, and there's some other places. We're really uh, just kind of splashing it everywhere at this point. And since the Independence Gang YouTube channel has been completely deleted by YouTube, it is gone, no trace of it whatsoever, uh, it obviously won't be there. And I'm still not happy with YouTube about that. I just haven't figured out how I want to respond. But anyway... Uh, I think it's on Twitch too, Gene. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't remember. It's, I think it is. It's on the Independence Gang U Twitch channel as well, Gene. So anyway, have a great night, everybody. Th yeah, I know, I'm going to look into that, Gene, but we're completely deleted. I don't think there's a recovery. I don't think that, that we're going to get a chance to get it back, but I'll check that out. I'll, I'll look for that and check it out. Thank you. I hope everybody has a great night, and um, I will see, like I said, if, if, uh, if we're talking about... Um, America's Lunchroom, I'll see you tomorrow. If we are talking about uh, Independence Gang, tomorrow night. We should have have that for you. So uh, I'm, I'm stalling here because I need to get something ready to, for outro. Sorry, I wasn't ready for this. Is this the one? I guess this is the one. All right, everybody have a great night. We'll see you.